This episode is brought to you by Merrick Pet Care. And if you've heard me talk about Grammy, you know that she means the world to me. I wanted a dog for probably 10 years and I was living in an apartment, couldn't have dogs. When I finally moved somewhere else, I adopted her within weeks and it was love at first scritch. She's about two feet away from me as I record this. She hangs out in the studio and all I want to do is smooch her and look at her and stare at her. I also like feeding her because I see how happy it makes her. And there's nothing like watching her lick her chops after having yummy stuff like Grammy's pot pie or real Texas beef and sweet potato, which are two recipes she's been enjoying for America. As her parent, I like that they use deboned meat and fish or poultry as the number one ingredient. I also like that they have these real ingredients and you can see them on the bag so you know what's in each one. And watching her do a little dance, especially with a Grammy's pot pie recipe, brings too much joy to my heart. Is there such a thing as too much joy? I'm not sure. But check out Merrick online or in your local pet store and look for their new packaging with real ingredients shown on the bag and inside it. Hey, Fidelity. What's it cost to invest with the Fidelity app? Start with as little as $1 with no account fees or trade commissions on U.S. stocks and ETFs. Hmm, that's music to my ears. I can only talk. Investing involves risk, including risk of loss. Zero account fees apply to retail brokerage accounts only. Zero dollar commission applies to online U.S. equity trades and ETFs and retail Fidelity accounts. Sell order assessment fee not included. Some account types and securities excluded. Details at fidelity.com slash commissions. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. Member NYSE SIPC. Oh, hey, it's the room temperature bubbly water that you're sipping like foam. Alley Ward, and we are back, and your relationship with millipedes is about to change because I know you, and you don't think about millipedes enough. So get ready for a new you, one that stops on hikes to sniff worm-looking things that were some of the first terrestrial animals. There's 12,000 species of these, but there might be five times that lurking in leaf litter around the world, and you will love them, and you will love this guest. So if you liked the vibe of the Dendrology episode with Casey Clapp, get ready for a ride. With this diplopodologist who studied biology for undergrad in Ohio, got a master's in entomology at the University of Arkansas, and his PhD in millipedes at Virginia Polytechnic Institute and State University. You may have noticed he's lived in the South. When he says the word color, it sounds like collar. And if you hear it and it delights you, feel free to take a tiny sip of the nearest beverage in celebration of him. He has been on my list for years to interview, and just this weekend, we got a chance to connect and talk legs. But before we get into it, just a quick thank you to everyone who supports this show at patreon.com slash ologies and sent in such wonderfully astute questions. Uh, thank you to everyone who recommends the show to your friends and your enemies alike, and to everyone who makes sure they're subscribed for fresh episodes and leaves reviews, which I honestly tearfully read every one of them. I'm not crying every time I read one, but I do read all of them, and I pull a new one each week to prove it. Like this week's is from R. Grabman, who wrote, come for the interviews, stay for the asides, and said that I was the human embodiment of a footnote, which is the highest form of compliment, they said, and I will take that. Also, get well, Ella. So thank you to your reviews. I read them all. Okay, on the episode in which you will upgrade your brain with trivia, such as where you will not find a millipede if they have toenails, the difference between a centipede and a millipede, big question. Which species has the most legs, glow-in-the-dark, wormy bugs, if Taylor Swift is on another astral plane with 300 legs? Sniffing these animals to impress others, free field guides, and why entomologists 
get to name critters after weird stuff with millipede enthusiast, absolute human gem, and top-notch diplopodologist, Dr. Derek Hennen. been on my list. I've had an index card with word millipedes and your email on it <laughs> sitting on my desk for like two years. Well, you know, I'm glad we were finally able to work it out. My name is Derek Hennon and I use he, him pronouns. Mm-hmm. And how long have you been? Is it a, wait, help me out. Decapodologist? Di- diplopodologist. Diplopodologist. <laughs> I said it wrong again. It's diplopodologist. I don't even know what a decapod is. I think that's shrimps and crabs, (laughs) some crustacean. Clearly the note card just said millipedes. (laughs) (laughs) That's all you need. Um, Do you know, what is the etymology of the ology? Do you have any idea? Yeah. So diplo coming from, I believe it's Greek for two and then poda foot. So two foot because they have two pairs of legs on each segment. So a diplopoda. Now, do most arthropods have just one coming off of a segment? Yeah, mostly it's just, you know, that one segment gives you one pair of legs. Millipedes are interesting because somewhere in their evolution, they've undergone this fusion of multiple segments into one. And so we call that the diplo segment. Not all of the millipede segments are diplo segments. There are some segments that don't have any legs. And there are a couple near the front of the body that only have one pair of legs on them. Um, But then most of the rest are going to be diplo segments. So are some arms and some legs? They're, they're all legs. You know, humans, <laughs> we're kind of weird because we do have arms and legs. But when you get down to the majority of animals, you're just talking, they're all legs. I've long, long argued that toads have arms. I feel like there's definitely like little hand and fingy situations happening. <laughs> yes. But what about, okay, millipede, though, comes from the word for thousand, right? Mm-hmm. And then centipede for 100? Yep. Is there any veracity to either of those names? Well, there didn't used to be, but uh, only a couple months ago, uh, my former PhD advisor, Paul Merrick, he worked with some Australian scientists who had found this weird millipede deep underground from a borehole. I think it was found during some um, mining exploration or like environmental assessment of someplace they wanted to mine. So they had this very, very deep tunnel to put a borehole down there and kind of collect whatever critters were down there. I I forget exactly how deep it was, but... I looked up the paper, and it was about 60 meters deep, or nearly 20 stories below the earth. Um, The point of it is that they brought up this weird millipede, and it is actually the first millipede that we know of that has a thousand legs. And so the thousand leg nomer was a misnomer until very recently. And now we know, yes, there are millipedes with a thousand legs. And so most millipedes, they'll have anywhere from, oh maybe like a, uh, a dozen or so leg pairs to, um, you know, one or 200. But we had not found one with a thousand before. Uh, previous to this, the millipede with the highest number of legs was from California. Righteous. And it was around 700 legs. That's still a shit ton of legs. I mean, let's be oh, honest. Oh, yeah, it's, it's so many. <laughs> if you round up, it's like, then it's almost, it's almost a thousand. I mean, yeah, you I know, know, I mean, if... If, if you're sitting down looking at one of these millipedes and you're like, oh man, that's a bunch of legs. Do I want to spend all this time counting them up? Or it's like, eh, one, two, three, a thousand. There we go. Yeah, yeah. we got a thousand <laughs> legs. 
What was it like in the millipede community when that leg number was counted and it was over a thousand? Like what, what was happening? Did people go out that night? Were there cakes? Oh yeah. Oh, we were celebrating because finally, you know, we get that question a lot and we'd be like, well, technically no. So we sound like a bunch of nerds, but now we can be like, yeah, they got a thousand legs, you know it. <laughs> and so it, it was nice to finally be like, yes, this is like a true name for this animal. We finally found it. It took us a little while, but we got there. Does that specimen have a, a genus and species name yet? Yes. So that is Eumillipes is the genus. And so that means mm-hmm. true millipede. And then Persephone, which is, uh, I'm not uh, that up to date on my Greek mythology, but I think Persephone was the one who went down to Hades mm-hmm. for yep. reasons. Just a side note. So in Greek mythology, Persephone was the daughter of Demeter and Zeus. And one afternoon, Persephone is just trying to have a chill day, picking flowers in a field mining her goddamn beeswax. And then Hades, the king of the underworld, rips a fissure in the earth and takes her to hell to be his bride. Her mom's pissed, especially since Zeus gave permission for all this bullshit. And also, Hades is Zeus's brother. So do the math. She now lives in hell with her sexual predator uncle as her husband. So many flavors of gross happening here. And so she's like, get me out. But Hades feeds her a pomegranate seed. So now she can never escape because them's the rules. So the family strikes a deal. She has to be bicoastal between hell and earth. And while she's in the underworld with her gross naked uncle, it's winter up here on earth. So anyway, this millipede that looks kind of like a noodle with a previously mythical number of over 1,000 legs— 1,306 to be exact, lives 200 feet below the surface and is named Eumilipis Persephone. Goth is hell. So, you know, it's a true deep millipede. Oh, man, what a find. Did um did your PhD advisor get to classify and name it? Yeah, yeah. So he was on that paper. One of my former lab mates, Jackson Means, he was also on that paper. And so they got it shipped from Australia. And my advisor, Paul Merrick, he counted up the legs, took a good photo of it, and then kind of put a dot every five legs or so, so he could count them more easily. And then Jackson did the genetic stuff for it to see, you know, where it falls out on the evolutionary tree of millipedes. And so it took them a while, but they were able to put that together and work with some other scientists and really produce a really nice paper that Got some great coverage in the media, which we're always happy to see when millipedes are mentioned uh, <laughs> anywhere in the media. And, you know, we were, we were all just happy to see the same finally come to fruition and get out there. Are millipedes mentioned in the media enough? Are there any pop cultural references to millipedes? Like, when do you tend to see them? When does your, like, Google alert for millipedes go off? Actually, in the past, like, decade or so, we're seeing more, like, coverage of millipedes in the media, which is nice. You know, when we find these... Uh, Supernumerary like millipedes, they'll get covered. Supernumerary meaning hella legs. I recently had described a bunch of millipedes stemming from my PhD work, and I named one of those after Taylor Swift. So <laughs> that was a lot of mil- that was a lot of media coverage. I was kind of thinking, okay, either you know people will notice it, or no one's going to see it or care. But it just kind uh-huh. of exploded. So I was happy to see that. But you know, a lot of coverage in the media about millipede stems from either, oh, you know, how many legs do these things actually have? Because, you know, people make lists of, oh, superlative animals, which has the most legs, which has the fewest, you know, snakes and mm-hmm. millipedes, I guess. So appreciative of Miss Swift's songs that Derek named the Tennessee millipede species Nanaria Swifty, or the Swift 
twisted claw millipede. And it does have twisted claws, just like the most bonkers nails you've ever seen. So I went to fact check all of this. And one of the top related Google inquiries was, why is Taylor Swift a millipede? And while that is a question for an alternate and perhaps a superior multiverse, the reason she is a millipede in this one is because of the chestnut hue of this 300-legged dirt-eating, tiny beast. So who else gets a millipede named after them? Thanks for asking. Derek's wife, Marianne, got a millipede on her, too. And for more on this kind of flavor of cuteness, you can listen to the recent Dipterology episode with Dr. Brian Lassard, who has named flies after Beyonce and RuPaul, among others. Versus other people, typically invertebrate biologists, we have a lot of things to name because there are so many undescribed invertebrates out there and they're the majority of animal species. So we have all these names to give to these critters. And if I named all these millipedes after some morphological feature, they'd probably be some pretty boring names because their their body really looks the same except for their sexual structures. Well, hello there. And, you know, oh. I feel kind of strange just naming the, them after the sexual structures. So... <laughs> I I like to include, you know, some more cultural names or other kind of stories behind the names. Mm -hmm. For example, I took some botany courses during my undergrad career, and I really enjoyed those. And so I like to know what kind of what the forest composition was like as I'm going through and finding these species. So I named probably four or five after just the tree species I was seeing. So there's Nenaria rhododendra, Suga, which is hemlock, um, Liriodendra, which is after tulip tree, which has one of the Mm -hmm. best scientific names I've ever read. Uh, Liriodendron tulipifera, just uh, it's gorgeous. It just rolls off your tongue like honey. <laughs> okay, there was this one millipede where I found it in northern Georgia, and I was on my own. I was collecting all by myself. I pulled up to this national forest site, and it's got these beautiful hemlocks and rhododendron trees. A beautiful stream just flowing through it. I'm like, ah, oh, this is beautiful. This is perfect for twisted claw millipedes. So I sat down, had a nice lunch. I was thinking about, ooh, how easy it's going to be to find these millipedes. And then I collected for about two hours, did not find any. And I was like, this makes no sense. This is the perfect habitat for these things. Where are they going to be? And so I got really angry and frustrated. So I just started, I use a um, garden claw to dig up these millipedes because they're under the soil, under the leaf litter. And so I just got so frustrated. I was hitting the ground with that and just digging a hole. (laughs) And... Lo and behold, I just saw one of these things pop up from the soil. It's like, oh, I finally found it. And, you know, it just took two hours of frustration to finally find it. And I named it Nenarius spalax, um, which means mole in Greek, because, you know, oh. we're just kind of digging under the soil. Now, is that what it looks like? Is that what field work looks like for you? You have a, a garden spade, mm-hmm. maybe a sandwich, and probably a hat and sunscreen, and you just are turning over leaf litter to see what you find? Yeah, pretty much. I feel like I'm very lucky because from my field work, I got to go to all these just beautiful forests and like state parks, national forests, kind of whatever other places I could get into. And whereas I have some other friends who for their scientific work, they would be like out in the middle of a cornfield or something in the blazing hot sun and just toiling. Whereas I'm, you know, having a nice little sandwich by the stream in a forest. Yeah. And it really is just getting into these places that have a good amount of leaf litter and then flipping logs and rocks, turning over a bunch of leaves, maybe digging to the soil a little bit. And that's how I would find my millipedes. Um, sometimes I would collect a bunch of leaf litter and put it through something called a burlazy funnel. It's essentially a bucket with a funnel in it. You put all this dirt and soil and leaf litter into that and then put a light above it. 
and then you put a cup of alcohol below the funnel. Can I get you a drink? And then that'll drive all the millipedes and other bugs down into that cup of alcohol, and then you sort through it later. And it's a great way to get you know these tiny little bugs you would never see otherwise. It's you see the coolest things in the leaf litter. Like you know, I've been doing this for. Uh, about a decade or so now, and I'm still finding species I've never seen before. And they're just all under your feet as you're walking through the woods and you would just never know otherwise, unless you just stopped and like looked. And so Mm -hmm. I I loved the field work I got to do. Um, A lot of the time it was with uh, my lab mate Jackson. And so we had a good time just driving, you know, throughout the Eastern US, listening to podcasts, stopping at whatever little pull off we could, if we saw some good trees And, you know, we just had a blast going through the forest and finding these little bugs. What were you like as a kid? Like, how did you know that you were destined to become a a diplopodologist? Diplopodologist. Diplopodologist. How did you, how did you figure out that's where your legs were taking you? I mean, it's, it's random. So if you talk to a lot of entomologists, you'll get these stories like, oh, I've I've been sticking bugs into my pocket since I was four years old. (laughs) I was not one of those kids. I I was inside playing Pokemon all the time. Um, You know, my my dad used to get angry at me. He was like, just go outside. You're always in your room playing video games. (laughs) And it wasn't until college that I really started to get more interested in biology. And I had some professors who were entomologists. And so you know, if we had a lab, we'd go out into the woods and look for bugs and do all this other stuff. And originally, I'd started college wanting to go into marine biology. But I also went to college in Ohio, and we don't have much ocean out there. But what we do have, particularly in southeast Ohio, where I was, is a lot of forest. And so once I discovered bugs, it's like, wow, you know, I can just kind of go anywhere and find these cool bugs. And so it just kind of snowballed from there. Getting into millipedes was completely random. I had the opportunity to go to this millipede and centipede identification workshop at a little biological station when I was still an undergrad. And they let me go for free. Um, I learned about millipedes and centipedes and that just kickstarted it because it was, it's was and remains a pretty wide open field. There's a lot of work to still be done. If you think of butterflies or dragonflies, these are groups that are pretty well studied because they're these big insects that are very charismatic and, you know, people like them. They're pretty to look at. But with millipedes and centipedes, there's only been at any one time in North America, at least, you know, maybe half a dozen people working on them. So there's still a lot of species (laughs) to be described, a lot of behavior to look at and just, you know, figure out the basic stuff of this. You know, you go to your local bookstore, you can probably find a great butterfly guide that tells you all the stuff you need to know for your area. And that just doesn't exist for millipedes and centipedes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. No one cares enough about them. It's not fair. Exactly. So we, we need to make them care. <laughs> and they're, they're so cool. They're, and there are so many beautiful ones too. I got into these things and I was like, oh, you know, maybe we'll see if I like them or not. And they, they just con- continue to blow my mind. They're so cool. What type of color variation and leg variation? I'm used to seeing the ones that look kind of like um, our dark brown hot dog. <laughs> with like a, a million legs. Like those are the ones that are sometimes make their way into the garage and you're like, oh, well, what are you doing here? And they're like, nothing, nothing. And w- what other types are out there? Yeah, so the one that most people are probably familiar with is kind of like you, you know, they've kind of come into your garage or your basement or something. They're kind of brown. They've got a bunch of legs. Um, and typically the ones that we see in our homes are introduced species. Oh, There's one species called the greenhouse millipede. It's native to East Asia, 
And it has since spread to every continent except Antarctica. And oh, whoa. Honestly, I wouldn't be surprised if they find it in McMurdo sometime. Like it is, <laughs> it is the most successful millipede in the world. Like it's not very interesting to look at, but you've got to respect the drive it has. If there's anyone down at McMurdo, the U.S. research station on Antarctica, listening to this, please holler at Derek if you see what looks to be a tiny, deep brownish kukui nut necklace, but with like 60 yellowish legs just scooting around, being like, hey, I made it. But millipedes as a whole, they come in every color under the rainbow. There are green millipedes, blue millipedes. I've seen these just mind-numbingly beautiful like violet purple millipedes. Um, This is a species near Knoxville, Tennessee. And it's just this really interesting slate gray, purple blue color to it. It's just gorgeous. So I'm based in Virginia and in the Appalachians, we're just blessed to have a plethora of gorgeous millipedes. They're like, their base color is black and they can have spots and stripes of yellow, red, orange, bright, colorful coloration. And, you know, you show someone one of those millipedes and that starts to kind of turn the gears in their head like, oh, maybe I was wrong about these guys. So <laughs> they're just, oh, they're so cool. Some of them will fluoresce under UV light. Oh, whoa. And so that's how I really fell in love with them. I learned about that and I was like, oh, I need to see this for myself. So I got, you know, a cheapo UV light on the internet, went out at night on a little night hike and just was shining it on the ground. And I saw just a couple dozen of these little millipedes that were maybe an inch long and they were just glowing this ethereal bluish green color. It was like all these little shining stars going under and out of the leaves. Like it was, it was amazing. Once you've seen that, it's, it's hard to not appreciate them. They're so oh, just amazing. That's what really made it all click for me. And I was like, yeah, this is what I'm going to do for the rest of my life. Oh, I love that. Do the six of you millipede scientists in the continental U.S. have any idea why they might fluoresce under that UV light? Yeah, it's, it's a good question. You know, we know it's a chemical in their exoskeleton that causes that fluorescence, but we don't know an exact reason for it. It might just be that it is a random byproduct of that chemical in their exoskeleton. But interestingly enough, out in California, there are true bioluminescent millipedes. So kind of like lightning bugs, they'll produce their own light. No. Yeah, and that has been found to be sort of a warning to predators. And so their main predators are these uh, little rodents, I think some type of mouse out there. And so by glowing, um, producing that light, that's sort of their aposematism, their warning coloration. At night, you know, it's dark. Their collars can't be shown with this, you know, don't eat me reds and yellows on blacks, that type of color. And so at night, if they can at least advertise to these rodents, hey, I'm glowing this collar, maybe think twice before you eat me, because you either die or throw up, and that helps neither of us. Uh-huh. <laughs> That's what bioluminescence is thought to be for. But the UV fluorescence, we don't really know if there is even a reason for that. And where, in terms of the bioluminescent ones, where are those found in California? Yeah, so those are in the Sierra Nevadas. I think that uh, Sequoia National Park has some. Mm-hmm. It's this really cool genus called Motixia. They're in the Sierra Nevadas of California, and there's also... One other bioluminescent millipede, I believe it's in Japan and those southern Ryukyu Islands. And so those are the only ones worldwide. Allie, you're in California. So if you're lucky, if you go out at 3 a.m. up in the Sierra Nevadas, you might be able to find some. (laughs) 
For more on bioluminescent bugs, you can see the Sparkle Pathology episode about lightning bugs with the world's finest firefly expert and a self-proclaimed sparkle botologist. That is her word, Dr. Sarah Lewis, in which I learned that California has pink glowworms. So Californians crush a can of monster and stay up till dawn looking for glowing bugs because there are worse ways to destroy your sleep cycle, and I've done them. Also, what is a millipede versus a centipede? Is it like how all cacti are succulents, but not all succulents are cacti? Or like how all tortoises are turtles, but not all turtles are tortoises? Nope. It's not like that at all. But you you also see a lot of people have trouble keeping in their heads what's a millipede versus what's a centipede because they just yeah. think, oh, you know, it's a little bug with a lot of legs. It's, you know, one of these things. And so a lot of times I'll be talking to people about millipedes and, you know, I, I, I'm thinking, oh, yeah, cool. I'm telling them all this good stuff. They're really into it. And then they're like, yeah, so with these centipedes, it's like, oh, man. <laughs> which, which, you know, you, you just try to meet people where they are. And, you know, before I started studying these things, I didn't know the difference or mm-hmm. you know, maybe I didn't even know there was a difference. So, you know, I don't try to focus on that, but I do try to, you know, Essentially, centipedes are carnivores. They have fewer legs. Millipedes are vegetarians. They have more legs. And so that's kind of a good way to split them apart in your head. Well, you know, curious about what the millipedes are eating versus what the centipedes are eating. And also, do you study centipedes at all? Or how is your time split between centipedes and millipedes? Yeah. So let's see. Um, between millipedes and centipedes, you know, for my PhD work, I was focused on millipedes. I might grab some centipedes when I was out. But um, mm-hmm. since I finished that, I've been getting a little more into centipedes. There's this group of centipedes called the stone centipedes. And they are not very well studied in North America. Um, there are scientists in other parts of the world that do study them. But here in North America, there was only really one guy studying them for like 50 years. He was kind of a jerk. And some of his taxonomy is <laughs> pretty bad. So, you know, I don't feel bad for shaming him now. Um, he, to give another tangent, this guy, when he died, I think he died in like the 50s or the 60s. And one of his former students, when he learned of his death, said, ah, his meanness must finally have gotten to him. Sounds like a dick. Yeah. But so for the longest time, you know, it was him. There have been a couple other um, American scientists who worked on this group of centipedes, but not too many. So there's still a lot of work to be done. So I've been trying to, you know, get into this group of centipedes more and kind of figure out, you know, where we are and try to pull together some identification resources for them so that, you know, we can actually get more people interested in them and working on them because there's so much work that still needs to be done. You hear that, budding entomologists? The world needs centipedes. And though they have tons of legs and kind of bitey jaws, they're not as big of dicks as their human researchers. So get in there. And they're cool little centipedes. If you get bitten by one, it's not really going to be a problem. These ones in North America, they only get to be about an inch long. So it might be kind of like a wasp or a bee sting. I've never been bitten by one so far. So, you know, if that happens, I'll update you. But a lot of them are pretty small. So I do a lot of leaf litter sampling and then I'll see them in the little um, cups of alcohol after they come through the Berlazi funnel. And some of them have really cool modifications to their legs, especially the last two pairs of legs on their body. Uh, There's one species around here in Southwest Virginia that I find pretty often. And the males will have this weird like brush of hairs on one of their leg segments, which is weirdly enlarged and kind of bulbous. And we don't really know what those hairs are for. Like, are they secreting chemicals to like attract the female or secreting pheromones to kind of calm her down so they can mate or something? We just don't know. It's a cool morphological feature but we don't know about the behavior of them. 
So I've been trying to get a little bit more into centipedes and sort of get a baseline of, okay, you know, what's occurring around me, that type of thing. And so hopefully, you know, in the coming decades, we'll get more and more information about these centipedes. And there are more people getting interested in them. Uh, I tell people, you know, right now is a great time to get into millipedes or centipedes because there's just so much more information. You can actually find good photographs of them online, which wasn't really the case when I started. Well, do centipedes, because they're carnivorous, do they have venom glands kind of like arachnids? Is that what's going on versus millipedes, which are are millipedes out eating kind of dead leaf litter and dead organic material? Yeah, yeah. That's an excellent way of thinking about it, actually. So, okay. So when we're talking about centipedes and their poison glands in their jaws, so a really cool thing about centipedes is their actual mouth parts are pretty tiny. They're not very large. Um, they have this really weird head morphology. What you see if you are looking at the underside of a centipede, those venom jaws or forcipules, those are actually modified legs. And if you sort of dissect the head of the centipede, it becomes really apparent like, oh, yeah, these are just, you know, beefy venom legs, essentially. If you get it under a really good microscope, you can actually look through the cuticle, the exoskeleton of those venom legs and see the poison gland within that. And it goes up to the very tip of the forcipule there. And it's very sharp, kind of like if you've ever seen an up close image of a scorpion sting or something like that. There's a little Mm -hmm. pore at the tip and that's where they... Uh, secrete the venom into whatever critter they've caught and are currently terrifying. Uh, It's kind of like spiders, how they'll also just kind of, you know, grab something in their jaws, inject that venom. Um, And spiders, they'll kind of suck out the juices. Um, They don't really have the mouth parts to tear things apart. Centipedes do. They're kind of small mouth parts, but they'll kind of, you know, after they've subdued something, killed it with their venom, they'll just sort of, I don't know, like, you know, if you're eating like a really frozen popsicle and you're just kind of gnawing on it, trying to get all yeah. the stuff off, that's kind of how they're eating their prey. You know, they just kind of have to gnaw on it and kind of get these chunks ripped off. What are they eating, by the way? They're really eating whatever they can get their hands on. And so, well, their legs on, I suppose. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so they're eating these small arthropods that are down on the leaf litter. Most of the time when you find centipedes, they're going to be either in the soil or kind of under logs, under the leaves. So depending on their size, they're going after small bugs like springtails, maybe juvenile insects that they're finding, really anything like that. As they get larger, uh, they'll feed on larger prey. So I think it was Planet Earth or one of these BBC documentaries, maybe like a decade ago now. It's been a while since I've seen it. But they've got this amazing footage of this bat cave somewhere in Southeast Asia, I think it was. And they've got these huge tropical centipedes that can get up to about a foot long, and they will hang from these ceilings to catch the bats as they fly out. Holding on with its hind legs, it reaches out into their flight path and almost immediately, it has one. An injection of venom from its fangs kills the bat almost instantaneously. It will take it an hour or so, but it will eat all the bat's flesh. Oh, shut up. Oh, oh. yeah. And as, as an invertebrate scientist, you know, whenever we see these stories of invertebrates eating vertebrates, we're, we're kind of trained. We're like, yeah, finally, here's how it feels. Because, you know, usually it's the vertebrates that are feeding on the inverts. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, we, we get some pride from that. Um, there was a recent paper looking at the um, ecology of this island somewhere in the Pacific, I think it was. And it was looking at these nesting birds and what the prayers of them were. And it turns out that there are these large tropical centipedes on the island, and they are the number one cause of mortality for these bird chicks. 
look this up, and this was on Phillip Island, which is about 900 miles east of Australia, where nearly 4,000 black-winged petrel chicks a year get gobbled by foot-long centipedes. There have been days where you are absentmindedly scrolling Twitter on the toilet at work, and somewhere on a quiet island, a centipede is eating a fucking bird. Oh my goodness, he ate a bird? Michael, he ate a bird. You know, when you get a large enough centipede, it'll start going after vertebrates. They'll kind of eat, again, whatever they can kind of subdue and get their legs around. Oh, my God. The idea of a bug eating a bird is so mind-blowing, like so backwards and weird and and cool. It it gives you pause. And, you know, while we're on that topic, (laughs) I I just want to, you know, blanket statement centipedes aren't trying to attack humans you know typically you're not going to have to worry if you're kind of around some of these larger tropical centipedes which that's what the entire um, group of those centipedes is called but we do have them in temperate regions as well you know just just don't grab these centipedes and you're probably going to be okay they're not particularly (laughs) aggressive towards us because we're just a lot bigger and they can't really eat us so they're going to leave us alone are there any species that can can send you to the hospital like a black widow or something? Yeah. You know, if, if you're coming up against one of these like foot long centipedes and it bites you and you're, if you're like immunocompromised or something like that, then it could probably send you to the hospital. It would at least be pretty painful. So you might go there just for that. But typically you're not going to have to worry about any that are, you know, really serious. Can I ask you questions from listeners? Yes, please. Oh, they have some good questions and I saved some of their good questions because I know it's on all of our minds. But before your questions, let's toss some money like leaf litter at a cause of the ologist choosing. And this week, Derek asked that it go to the Lower Muskingum Conservancy, which is a land trust in the Muskingum River watershed in Southeast Ohio. And it is for conservation purposes. And he said, I spent a lot of time on their lands collecting millipedes when I was in college, and they exemplify why caring about your local nature matters. You can visit muskingumriver.org, which is linked in the show notes in case I am saying that wrong. Thank you to sponsors for making that donation possible. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Listen, we're all carrying around just a backpack of stressors and sadnesses. When we keep them all zipped up and the load gets heavier, it can start to affect us negatively. You start to feel misunderstood, sad, resentful. A safe place to unpack that is, you guessed it, therapy. Therapists can help you dump out your bag and work through the heavy garbage that's weighing you down, in my case at least. I've used BetterHelp. They have definitely helped me understand that pushing my feelings down does not actually make them go away. It makes them feel worse. So if you've been thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient and flexible. It's suited to your schedule. You fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist. It's so much faster and easier than trying to hunt down a therapist from just online listings and cold calling. That's one thing I love about BetterHelp. And if for any reason you are not vibing with your therapist, you can switch anytime, no additional charge, no drama. So unburden yourself and trauma dump onto someone who's trained for this. So get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash ologies today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash ologies. Okay, your 1,000 questions, including this one, which was also asked by Justine Dahl, Jenna Catalano, 
Lauren Legg, Megan Ramirez, Asia Yeager, Elijah, and first-time question askers Anna Fraser and Leila Laco, and Mia Manzer wrote in this question. Fucking why? <laughs> that was the whole question. Um, but Hannah Noost, Eric Kay, Haley, Mo Casey, a lot of people want to know why. Why so many legs? Well, why not? I mean, don't get me wrong. I would like 700 to 1,000 legs also. I mean, more the better. But from an evolutionary standpoint, why so many legs? Yeah, you know, that's a good question. That often comes up. Essentially, the body plan of a millipede. You've got head, and then you got trunk. And so trunk is just all the other segments after the head. Mm -hmm. And so they have a segment right after the head called a column. And it's kind of larger, um, usually kind of quadrate. Quadrate just means square, side note. So their quadrate column is just a big square-ass neck. Think of it sort of like a bulldozer or something. They have this plate that they can push against stuff. And Mm -hmm. in their daily lives, what they're mostly doing is kind of burrowing around and moving stuff. And so having all those legs and that um, plate right at the front of their bodies, all those extra legs give them a lot of power. And so that helps them push away like soil particles, pieces of wood, things like that, and helps them be able to burrow and tunnel around. And so probably why they have all those legs is that it gives them a lot more power to be able to really push through or wedge themselves into tight spaces. Some of these millipedes with many, many legs, like a Eumillipes Persephone, that true thousand leg millipede, Mm -hmm. it's probably also using all those legs because it's living deep down underground in the soil. Maybe that kind of helps them grab onto soil particles and be able to move around a lot. When you get that many legs, it gets a little bit tricky to even walk, um, you know, on on the top of the ground. And so typically when you see a lot of legs on a millipede, they're going to be kind of down in the soil and able to move around, grab into soil particles and move their bodies around that way. I've seen some of these millipedes just like on a countertop or just like kind of out of that very tight soil crevice space. And they're not very good at moving. They kind of wrap around. They're just sort of looking for stuff that they can wrap their legs around to really propel them and move around with. And so, you know, if you have all these legs and that pushing plate that gives you power to burrow around or just to grab onto soil particles so you can actually move through the substratum. So it makes much more sense to watch them walk through dirt than it does on your garage floor. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. Oh. Like if you ever see them on your garage floor, they might kind of slip or they, they'll sort of start to climb a wall and then fall over. It's kind of cute, actually. You yeah. Know, I, I sometimes I keep them in these little cups when I'm working with them. And they'll just kind of go around the edge and then try to go as high up as they can. And then they kind of fall over and, you know, they're kind of embarrassed and try to right themselves. <laughs> but, you know, if they're just in the soil and kind of or like under a log or something, that's where they like to be. That's where they can really move around and show off how good they are at just moving and living. That makes me feel so much better for them because, yes, I think we're used to seeing them looking awkward, but they're like, yeah, I'm just out of my element, dude. I also I love that for people that only have one to two legs, maybe tops, that just the idea of like, why, how could you possibly need those? But if you are walking through a bunch of rocks and pebbles, like you would want, obviously, more limbs to get them out of the way, you know? Oh yeah. How badass. One of the coolest things too, it, you you can find this pretty easily online, but if you look up just like a slow motion video of a millipede walking, it's it's weirdly beautiful. They have what's called a metachronal gait. And so that's different from like a tripod gait of most insects where they're moving three legs at once. Millipedes, when they're moving, this is another cool thing about their diplo segments that we talked about earlier, how they're 
most of those segments are fused together. Within each of those diplo segments, they have two ganglia, so two tiny brains in their bodies. And as they're moving, you know, their brain sing- sends a signal, okay, let's move forward. That signal cascades down the body through each of these tiny brains, which then tells those legs to move. Brains in its legs, like a chain reaction of leg brains. And for more on why people are horny about this, you can see articles like the recent science piece titled Centipedes, the Envy of Engineers, Inspire a New Generation of Robots. Leg brains, hundreds of leg brains. And so as it's moving, you just see this like wave motion of the legs moving together. And it's just, it is super cool to see. And if you ever find a millipede out and about, if you just kind of watch it, you know, kind of stop and Maybe if you think that millipede has too many legs, I'm freaked out. Maybe just kind of deep breaths, <laughs> calm down, just watch it walk, and it's strangely beautiful and hypnotizing. Uh, do you find that people don't quite understand the work you do because we have a fear of so many legs? But then again, people are freaked out by snakes because they don't have any legs. Have you, in the 10 years you've been doing this, seen patterns to what people are squicked out by? Yeah, it's definitely if there are more legs that are longer, then the freaked out factor is higher. So if you, <laughs> if you take something like a house centipede, which people are familiar with, yeah, these are an introduced species in North America, and they're often found in basements or like bathrooms. They like to hang out in your tub or your sink. People don't like to see that at 2 a.m. You know, number one, here's something that shouldn't be here. Oh, no, it has a lot of legs. Oh, no, they're very long. I'm out of here. So if you get that, then people are more, you know, scared of it. They don't really like to see that. But with these smaller millipedes that have, you know, maybe their legs aren't so long, even if they do have a lot of them, if you if they're just not as apparent, it doesn't freak people out as much, which is good. And so what I tell people if they're, you know, sort of scared or they don't like these millipedes and centipedes, you know, maybe look up a couple photos of some of the prettier ones. So if you just search for like the family Zistodesmidae, the cherry millipedes, that's a great way in to overcome your fear because these are beautiful. These are the Ferraris of the millipede world. Ah. They are gorgeous. They're the ones that um, they have the black on yellow coloration, oranges and reds. There's a species um, here around Blacksburg where I'm based. And it just looks like, you know, the most beautiful paint was just dripped down its body. It is gorgeous. And, you know, you see one of those, you see it fluorescing under UV light. You know, how can you not love that? They're just the best. They can compete with any butterfly that's out there easily. <laughs> and so it's it's sort of like this exposure therapy. You know, if you're kind of freaked out or scared of these things, little by little, if you kind of look at the ones that are easiest to appreciate first, that'll kind of help you overcome that fear. And so that's what I try to suggest to people. You know what? Let's try and mend a fence here. When it comes to house centipedes, do you have any advice for people who do see them, say, in the sink or on a wall? Because I feel like house centipedes are the bug that gets texted to me the most by friends who are terrified, being like, what is this? I think I've found a new species or maybe aliens have landed or something of that nature. Do you have any advice for people who encounter a house centipede? Because they do look like feathery with legs. It looks like a like an eyelash strip, two eyelash strips fused with a worm in the middle, you know? Oh, they do, they do. Oh, that's amazing. Um, yeah, you know, my so the first thing I would say, which I recognize is not very helpful, but have you thought about just accepting the new roommate? Because they play an important <laughs> role in your house, which is if you're seeing these house centipedes, what you're not seeing are all the bugs that they're eating because they are voracious predators. They are, they're 
oh my gosh, their venom jaws are terrifying. They have all these like spikes and spines on them. Like they can catch prey very well. And they're so fast. You look at them, you blink and they're gone. And so they're great at eating all the other bugs that you don't want in your home. And Mm so, you know, typically they stay out of the way, but sometimes your paths cross, but that is how they pay rent. Um, (laughs) The other thing I would tell people if, you know, they've got enough roommates or they live with roommates for long enough, um, if you, you can take like a Tupperware container or a large cup or something, if you can kind of very carefully put that over the centipede, slide a piece of paper onto there, and then you can just take it outside and throw it out. And then you don't have to worry about it anymore. But, you know, I try, I am so excited whenever I find one of those in my home. Cause I'm always <laughs> like, oh yes, finally, I've only found maybe one or two. And I lived in the same place for, you know, like seven years at this point. So mm-hmm. I, I want more. I want send me your house centipedes. I will take them. <laughs> Or at least take a picture and post it online and let others know, like, these eat baby cockroaches. They eat the things that you don't maybe want in your house. So they're yeah. they're doing good work. They deserve to be there just as much as you do. But we had um, a lot of listeners, Victoria Edding, HPG, Chris Curious, first-time question asker, Leela Mancad, uh, wanted to know about the smell. Chris asked, why do they smell weird when you pick them up? Leela or Lila asked... I heard they don't sting, but produce hydrogen cyanide. Victoria wants to know, does a millipede have to be crushed to release its smelly toxin? Or do they just fart it out when they're scared? So what is it? Yeah, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm sorry if you're hearing a crunching noise. My cat is chewing on plastic for some reason. <laughs> um, hopefully that doesn't come through. Chloe, stop it. Anyway, um, I'm, I'm surprised that it's taken us so long to get to the smell. Yeah, so they have... They are a just, you know, flower field of varying smells. Um, You do not need to crush them to get them to emit their smell. It is kind of like they're farting because they're scared. You know, don't hug me. I'm scared. Excuse me. I had to fart. That's what the millipedes are telling you. And they have, we have a wide variety of which millipedes smell and don't smell. So not all millipedes smell. Some of them don't have chemical defenses. So their main defense is going to run away or just not be seen in the first place. So, you know, we don't have to worry about those right now. So to answer your question about self-defense, Brooke Williams, they bolt or they stink. The ones that do smell, there's some that I I call them chapstick millipedes. The common name is slug millipedes because they kind of look like a little slug. Their legs are kind of hidden under their body. So if you're freaked out by legs, you won't be freaked out by these ones. Mm -hmm. To elicit any millipede to really release its chemical defenses, you just have to pick it up and kind of gently move it around in your hand and then smell and these ones, they smell like camphor or chapstick or something weirdly chemical. It's super cool. And so if you uncover these, you can actually smell them before you see them sometimes. Like that is my cue when I'm in the field. I'll be like, oh, there's a smell. Where's the millipede? There are others that smell just like just the worst. There's this <laughs> group called the crested millipedes. And they look really cool when they secrete the chemical defenses because typically they're going to be this nice chocolate brown color. Like, ah. Oh, hey, that's a pretty cool millipede. Check that out. And the chemicals come out in these little liquid droplets. And they kind of look like these little milky latex droplets all along the sides of the body. Like, oh, cool, it's chocolate milk millipede. But then you smell it. Oh, no. And it's just like spoiled milk over a decaying carcass. Like, it is weird (laughs) that it smells so bad. Like, I, I try my best not to ever pick these up because then... You just don't want to eat anything for like a day because anytime you bring anything close to your face, you get that smell. 
It's awful. Oh, it God. So much. Oh, no. Yeah. But, you know, that's that's what you want when you're trying to deter predators. All these chemical defenses are to make sure that any predators will smell that and then maybe stop before they try to eat you. Because, you know, the smell, that tells them they're poisonous. So it's like, hey, just so you know, before you try to bite me, I will taste bad. And they're like, whatever, I don't believe you. And then the predator bites them. And they're like, oh, wow, you were poisonous. And then they either throw up or die. And so it's in the best interest of the millipede to make sure the predator knows before it even gets that far, hey, I don't taste good. I'm poisonous. Leave my leave me alone. And then the predator can tell them, okay, I respect your distance. That's cool. I respect your distance. That's a good thing to say in general, just whatever anyone wants. I respect your distance. Yes, yes. I think that all the time whenever I come across, you know, anything mildly wild. Yeah. Do any smell good? Now, the the best the best smell that you can ever get with millipedes. One of the listeners asked about hydrogen cyanide. And yes, some millipedes do release hydrogen cyanide. Um, this is only in the group called the flat-backed millipedes, the polydesmida. This is the most diverse group of millipedes worldwide. And they release a couple chemicals. And so they have benzaldehyde and hydrogen cyanide. And so the hydrogen cyanide, you know, it's a very... Um, potent poison. You don't want any cyanide going into your body. The benzaldehyde makes it smell like cherries or almonds. So that's why um, mm. one particular group, the Zistodesmidae, gets their common name of the cherry millipedes from that smell. And, you know, if you see a pretty relatively large for a millipede, maybe inch, inch and a half or so, and it's black with these great yellow or orange spots, that's probably a cherry millipede. If you pick that up and shake it around and then smell your hands, it smells like cherries. Like it's, I, I, I can't really eat many cherry flavored things anymore because it just reminds me of the millipedes now, but it is just, it's amazing. And like, if you see that and you're on a hike with your friends, pick that up and show them and they're, they will think you're the coolest. Well, they won't think you're the coolest, but they'll think it's interesting. Um, I, I love to do that, especially if I'm like on a hike with a bunch of kids and it's like, Hey, smell this bug. And they're like, Whoa, wow. It smells like candy. It's like, yes, don't eat it. Because, you know, you don't want to ingest that um, hydrogen cyanide. And there have been some studies done where the typical, um, one of the most common of these is the Virginia cherry millipede. It's black with yellow stripes, typically. And it has enough hydrogen cyanide in its body to kill 18 pigeon-sized birds. Oh, wow. That's specific also. Yeah. If a human were to eat one of these, I don't think it would have major harm to you. You you might, like, throw up or something. You don't want to eat these things. You'll probably be okay just because... Uh, we're much more massive than even 18 pigeon-sized birds. You want more info? You can saunter over on your sad amount of legs to the 2009 study, uh, Mullerian Mimicry Ring in Appalachian Millipedes. So first off, Mullerian Mimicry is when different species have a similar warning signal, and both will kick your ass. So like the bright colors of different millipedes which don't even have eyes to see each other, but have evolved to have similar coloring and warning systems for their sighted enemies. Now, there's also Batesian mimicry, which is when a species evolves to be a knockoff of another's warning colors, but it's actually just a harmless dupe. Can you believe it? But the millipedes in Appalachia that look alike squirt this noxious stuff from an opening called an ozipore. So go on, get Stephanie Lesky, as long as we're talking about the output of millipedes wants to know what's their poop like? Is it long like them? (laughs) This is such a specific question. Um, Oftentimes it's liquidy and gritty because Mm -hmm. they're mostly feeding on leaf litter and the way they do that, um, they're not very picky. So they just sort of 
go through the dirt and the leaf litter and just kind of like have their mouths open. They're just kind of gnawing at whatever. So their guts are typically filled with a lot of soil, leaf particles, dead leaf particles. And so I've picked up enough millipedes. I've been pooped on by a lot of millipedes at this point. <laughs> and usually it's kind of liquidy and brown and, you know, you'll clean it off or wipe it off and it just kind of leaves some mud because of all that dirt that they've ingested. So mm-hmm. typically, you know, it's pretty dirty and liquidy, but there are some millipedes. The best example, which here in North America is Narcissus Americanus, the giant American millipede or the ironworm. And it's one of our largest millipedes, at least here in the um, Eastern U.S. It can grow to be about four or five inches long. So, you know, pretty big cool. sucker. Yeah. And the, the mother, she is a great mother. What she does, she will lay her eggs. Typically, we're used to something like a bird. Oh, it lays its egg out where near where its butt is. With millipedes, their reproductive organs are actually closer to their neck. Oh. They're progoniates. And so that's a lot different than we're used to. So that took me a while to get used to, too. Yeah. So yeah. what they'll do, the mother Narcissus millipede, she will take an, an egg out from by her neck, fertilize it as it exits her oviduct. And then she'll take that egg, pass it all the way down her body. And she's got like probably around 150 pairs of legs. So, you know, it's like an assembly line passing it all the way down. She will then take that egg and just take it a little bit upper butt to then encase it in her poop and really squeeze that to get any excess water out and then place that in this nice little poop ball. And so if you were to open up one of those poop balls, it has a nice little egg in it. Oh my God. And that poop ball protects the egg, you know, from desiccation, other elements, something coming up to eat it. And then when that tiny little baby millipede hatches, it will eat its way out of that fecal pellet as oh it does, and it ingests some of that fecal matter, and it gets some of the microorganisms from its mother so that it can then digest those dead leaves. Thanks, Mom. So it is just, you know, a perfect example of a loving mother doing everything she can to set her children up to have a successful life. You'll sometimes come across these little piles of poop, and if you open them up, you can find these little eggs. Can you imagine just getting smeared, just like a mud mask, like, bye-bye, baby. And then you just leave them. You leave a batch of the, of your babies and you keep walking. And she will lay, you know, multiple batches. Of She'll lay like over 200 eggs, maybe even more at different points in her life. I'm glad we're addressing this because Leah E. Anderson and Morgan both want to know about congregations of them. Leah says, this summer I was at a state park in Wisconsin. During a hike, I came upon thousands of millipedes on the ground, crawling up trees and rocks and even in the creek. And Morgan says, I went camping last weekend and found many millipede friends in the bathrooms. Why are they congregating in a relatively clean building? Do they all hatch at once? I am so jealous of these people. Uh. Um, I don't know if they hatch exactly at once, but they do hatch um, pretty close to one another. And so, you know, if you've come across a hatch of millipedes, maybe you'll see a bunch of them, though they are very tiny and they only hatch with uh, three pairs of legs which is kind of cool. They add more legs as they grow. Um, but when we're talking about these congregations of millipedes, like especially if people are seeing them kind of roaming across the landscape, I, w- I still have never seen that. I've never seen this just mass of millipedes migrating. And so we still don't have a good idea of exactly why this is happening. It seems to happen oftentimes when it's kind of drier in the summer. So maybe part of this, these migrating masses of millipedes, they've been reported to be thousands of individuals at once. Um, Typically, they're juveniles, maybe a couple adults with them, but it might be that they're all moving to sort of find places with better resources. Maybe where they've been, it's too dry. So during the summer, that makes sense. But millipedes are in, it's dangerous for them to be in these very dry areas because unlike insects, 
which have a nice waxy coating on their exoskeleton to protect them from drying out. Millipedes typically don't have that. And so they need to be able to be in these moist, humid um, habitats so that they don't just, you know, dry up into a husk and die. Mm -hmm. And so it might be when there's a big mass of them, they're just trying to find a better place to kind of hang out and eat some dirt and leaves. Mm -hmm. But we don't have a great idea of exactly why it happens. But you'll see images pop up on like iNaturalist or social media where people are freaked out by why all these millipedes are here. Sometimes it'll come into people's basements. I had a friend send me a photo of her parents' basement. They were removing buckets of millipedes, which ended up being the greenhouse millipede. And they like these, you know, humid, wetter areas. And so they like to really go to these places that have a lot of water available for them. Buckets of millipedes. That sounds like a genre film, just like a horror film. Also, I think that you should know that according to the 2020 paper titled Genital Morphology and the Mechanics of Copulation in the Millipede Genus Pseudopolydesmus, published by researchers at the Field Museum, when engaged in lovemaking, male millipedes will jizz behind their second set of legs and then they'll goop it up on their own legs, just sending it down the line to the seventh set of legs before they hand it off to a female's neck vagina. And all of this business really just makes our sci-fi aliens seem boring. And I was sitting there pouring through the studies, CT images of boning millipedes and these electron-scanning arthropod genitals, and it just became apparent that we're the aliens abducting creatures to study their junk. It's us. First-time question asker Amy Zucker Morgan Stern wants to know, uh, they grow by adding segments, right? So how does that work? If you look closely at an adolescent millipede, will you see a lot of partly formed segments or segments that haven't let their legs down yet or what? And Greg Wallach wants to know, do millipedes actually keep growing if they get cut in half or lose limbs? Does that happen? Oh, so if a millipede loses some limbs, generally it'll be fine. If you cut a millipede in half, it's going to die. So avoid doing that. You don't want to do do that. that. Okay. Yeah, but they do add more segments throughout their life. And so... If you look at a baby millipede, it's got six legs. You're like, okay, cool. It's going to have a couple of segments at the end of the body that are legless. And so as it molts, it'll add legs to those legless segments. And when those legs get added, it adds a couple more rings without legs. And so it'll keep doing that. And that's how it adds the legs. You know, it's just kind of the slow growth during each molt. They'll be able to add more legs to them. Some millipedes, they will keep doing this throughout their life until they die. Just keep adding more and more legs. Most other millipedes, though, they'll reach a certain point and then be like, okay, that's enough. And, you know, that's where they'll end with their legs. A lot of the millipedes, like the flatback millipedes that we've talked about before, those will have about 20 pairs of legs. And then they're like, okay, you know, that's good enough for me. Um, But some of these longer cylindrical millipedes, they'll keep adding for a little while. You're not going to see these kind of half-formed legs jutting out, but you will see these legless segments at the end of the body. It kind of, it almost looks like it has a weird tail there. You're like, oh, why are there no legs here? Is it Mm -hmm. injured? No, it's still just growing. It's adding them as it goes along. It's just awkward. Yeah. Just an awkward teenager. A little bit more of a slug-like look. Cute. You know, I'm just waiting for my legs to come in. It's fine. (laughs) Um, Anna Hanlon's a first-time question asker and said, uh, they asked their grandma if she had any questions about millipedes and your grandma asked, do they have toenails? Do they have toenails? Um, kinda, I guess. They have little claws. And so if you look very closely at the end of a millipede leg, they got these various leg segments called podomeres. And they'll get mm-hmm. all the way to the end where you've got a tarsus. And then attached to that last tarsus, they got a little claw jutting out. And 
So, you know, I'd, I'd consider that a toenail. Oh, and that's amazing. Yeah, yeah. And so they'll have, you know, kind of that main claw. Um, one of the groups of millipedes that I studied were the twisted claw millipedes. And they're called that because the males, um, on some of their in- anterior legs, they have these really weird, they're twisted and kind of spatulate claws. We don't know what exactly they use them for. Maybe it's to hold on to the females during mating, but the females don't have them. Only the males have those twisted claws. And they're super cool to see. If you like Google twisted claw millipede, you'll be able to see what that looks like. So yeah, they do have toenails. That's so good to know. I, I would have thought that that was a definite no. And now we know. If you let them walk on, on your hand, like if you see one of those giant American millipedes, put it on your hand as it's walking along. It almost feels like little Velcro kind of mm-hmm. moving along. And that's the little claws going into your skin and just oh. trying to get a hold on. It kind of tickles. It's fun. Uh, Megan Duffy, first time question asker, wants to know if you've seen the Charlie the Unicorn episode with the giant space millipede. <laughs> of course. Yes, I saw that when it came out. I'm a millipede. I am amazing. I command you to gaze upon my face. I sometimes that that song gets stuck in my head for sure. Uh, and finally, Will Clark, first time question asker, wants to know: Do they make good pets, or better left outside, munch and poop and stuff? What do you think? Personally, I think they're better left outside. They can be relatively easy to keep as pets. In the pet trade, you might see like the desert millipede or the American giant millipede. Those are often kept in captivity. And, you know, I kept one of those giant American millipedes for like a year and a half or so. Mm-hmm. And they're fine. You just need to give them some leaves, maybe some lettuce, um, spray the container so that it stays nice and moist for them. They just don't really do a lot. Like, it, it's kind of nice to have them around to show people what a big millipede looks like. But you're not going to get too much back and forth with it like you would with a cat or a dog. So I prefer my cat. But, you know. Uh, generally millipedes are pretty easy to keep though. Some groups are more difficult than others, but you know, these big cylindrical ones, you know, if you're kind of interested and just want to keep one for a little while, yeah, that's Mm -hmm. a fine thing to do. Imagine if Chloe one had 720 legs. So what about the worst thing about millipedes? There's gotta be something that sucks or about the job. There's gotta be something you don't like about millipedes. Yeah. I, I think the worst thing is just you know, I'll be out sometimes looking for some of these millipedes and it'll be beautiful habitat and just, you're not finding anything. It'll be, you know, hot and humid. Um, I sometimes tell people that looking for millipedes extracts a blood tax because the best millipedes like to be around poison ivy or stinging nettle or ticks and mosquitoes. And so whenever it's warm outside during the season, I just get more bug bites and weird scabs and stuff. And it's like, well, that's nature for you. You need to give something equivalent exchange. So I I don't enjoy that part so much. Um, But, you know, there's a lot to like about millipedes. So I I can't really complain too much. What's your favorite? I always have to end on what your favorite thing about them is. I can't even imagine. What how are you? How are you even going to pick one? Yeah, my favorite thing is just when before I got really into millipedes, I wasn't really like into nature so much and, you know, really appreciative of the local nature and ecology around me. But with millipedes, there's a lot of endemic species, which means that there are some that only occur in a small area and nowhere else in the world. Some of these ranges we have for millipedes is less than a square meter because the species has only been found once. And particularly here in North America and here in the Appalachians where I am, we have so many endemic millipede species that don't occur anywhere else. They're rarely found because people aren't looking for them. And so as I've gotten more into millipedes and finding these different species and you know, learning more about them, it just really makes me appreciate the nature all around me and that local connection to, you know, this 
random patch of woods near where you live. And I think that's a really powerful connection because you'll see nature documentaries and they're deep in the jungles of Borneo or, you know, off the coast of Brazil, these very far flung places from where we are in the United States, at least. And by really getting into my local bugs and millipedes, it's really made me appreciate where I live. That gives you perspective. And I think it's a really powerful way to connect with the nature all around you and not just kind of, you know, to, to make sure you care and kind of think about, okay, here's a patch of trees. Should we make it a parking lot or leave it as a natural area? I hope that, you know, even if you kind of look at a millipede or a bug or any part of nature, that you can find that way to really connect with the place where you live and not just kind of think, oh, all the cool stuff is far away. So why does this even matter? Mm -hmm. And that perspective, um, I've really enjoyed kind of learning more about my local nature and especially millipedes. And there's always something new, like these millipedes and centipedes. And we didn't even talk about um, these other related myriapods called poropods. They look like little twinkie potatoes that are maybe two millimeters long and i go crazy whenever i find one they're so cool they're so neat and no one knows about them the the world expert on this was a guy who lived in sweden i believe and Mm -hmm. he was in his 90s he died a couple years ago and so there's just no one really working on these things anymore and so you know we need ambassadors for these little bugs it doesn't have to be millipedes or poropods though i hope it is you can contact me and i'll talk to you about them Uh Whatever nature is around you, I think it's important to be an ambassador for these cool parts of nature that you might not think about otherwise. Well, keep up the amazing work. It's really wonderful to follow you on social media because I feel like if ever there's going to be any millipede news, you're going to be the one breaking it and disseminating that information. So I got very excited. Well, thank you. Where can people find you and find more of your work? Yeah, you can follow me on Twitter. I'm at Derek Hennon. I also have, if you just want the millipede and centipede news and nothing else you can follow my millipede specific account which is at dear millipede so you know if you have a question about millipedes or centipedes or want to send me some or just a cool photo of one you can send to me on twitter you can find my emails out there but yeah mm-hmm. twitter's probably the best way to contact me what about books any future books oh yeah oh gosh i completely forgot um, <laughs> not future books but i yeah. finally did do something that i've been wanting to do for a decade now since right when I got into millipedes. So mm-hmm. I grew up in Ohio. That's where I learned millipedes. And as I was trying to pull together, you know, just a basic, oh, what millipedes are around me? It was very difficult to do because there weren't any field guides for any millipedes in North America. So mm-hmm. I fixed that. I worked with um, my colleague, Jeff Brown, and people at the Ohio Division of Wildlife. And we put out a free guide to Ohio's millipedes. And it's got beautiful photos, mostly from other people who very graciously let me use their photographs. But if you just Google Ohio Millipede Guide. You can find a PDF of it online for free. It's very specific to Ohio, but you can use it to kind of get an idea of what groups of millipedes might be around you wherever you are in the U.S. and Canada. And so you can also get a printed copy if you contact the Ohio Division of Wildlife. And it, it's gorgeous. I got mine a couple months ago and I was just, oh, just, it was so nice to see it. And so hopefully, you know, now when people are like, oh, you know, I'd like to know more about millipedes, they have something they can take with them on a hike and kind of get down to maybe the species or if not the species, then the order of family of the millipede they might be seeing. I'm so excited for that. Congratulations. That's a big deal. That's so cool. I will link the PDF in the show notes so people can click on it and just kind of peruse and see these different types of millipedes and get their eyeballs around them, you know, wrap their brain and eyes around them. Yeah, we need more eyeballs on millipedes. And I also want to say that the flatback millipedes and many other millipedes 
don't have any eyes at all. So oh. it's our job to appreciate their beauty uh, because they just can't do it. So we need to make sure they are affirmed that they are doing great. They are beautiful and magnificent. So oh. please join me in doing that. Thank you, Dr. Melopee. This has been amazing. <laughs> Thank you for having me. I had a lot of fun. So ask Millipede people millions of questions because honestly, they want you to know. And Derek's social media handles are linked in the show notes. Follow him. And so is the PDF field guide to Millipedes and the charity that we donated to. More links will be up at alleyward.com slash ologies slash diplopedology, which is linked in the show notes so you don't have to spell it. I'm at Allie Ward on Instagram and Twitter, and we're Ologies on both. Ologies merch is available at ologiesmerch.com in case you need a shirt or a hat or a tote or a gift or a bathing suit to put on your body. Thank you to Susan Hale for taking care of merch and so much, so much else for the show. Thank you, Noelle Dilworth, who does the scheduling and is driving me to the airport at 6 a.m. tomorrow to see family in Montana. Thank you to Aaron Talvert, Shannon Feltis, and Bonnie Dutch, who admin the Ologies Podcast Facebook group. The Wordery makes professional transcripts and Caleb Patton bleeps them. Those are up for free at alleyward.com slash ologies extras. Thank you, Kelly O'Dwyer, who does the website. We also have short episodes called Smologies that are condensed. They have no swears in them. And those are in our feed. You can just scroll through or you can find them all at alleyward.com slash Smologies. That's linked in the show notes. Mercedes Maitland and Zeke Rodriguez Thomas of Mind Jam Media make those with assists from Stephen Ray Morris. And the man who I would name a millipede for, hands down, legs down, Jarrett Sleeper, lead editor, and puts this all together every week. And Nick Thorburn wrote the music. If you stick around until the end of the week, I tell you a secret. And this week, I would like you to know that I got Invisalign in October 2018, and I it was I was supposed to be done March 2019, I think. Is that right? Oh. Okay, yeah, but because of the pandemic and the fact that I can only seem to remember to wear them at night, it will be four years of my having Invisalign. It was supposed to be six months. I can't even begin to process that. And I think that my orthodontist wonders how I'm a member of regular society. I'm like he. I think he's concerned for me. Anyway, whatever you're doing, you're doing great. All right, bye-bye. Those legs. Dive into the start of summer at Whole Foods Market. Check out their summer splash event with sales on fresh organic produce, organic strawberries, and a fan favorite sale on Ben and Jerry's and Talenti. Explore deals on grill friendly meats like organic air chilled chicken breast, beef, and chicken kebabs, all with no antibiotics ever from our meat department. Plus, grab easy sides from prepared foods and cool off with refreshing drinks. Kick off your summer and shop in store or online at Whole Foods Market today.